0: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. What I would like to talk about today is meditation practice. We have in the past weeks and months been talking about a spiritual path, motivation, trust and invocation, compassion, tantra, and wholeness. And we can approach the, that healing path from a somatic channel, from a heart channel, from a mind channel. In my personal experience, and I'm not saying this is true for everybody, meditation is the most direct way for me to begin To work with my mind and my body. That might not be true for everybody, but I think pretty much everybody in this group has some experience in meditation. I'd like to look at meditation as a path itself. When I was with Maharaji, he even discouraged us from meditating. When people would start meditating, if they were males and they were close enough to him, he'd start pulling their beard to uh, distract them. And I guess the feeling was that being with that, that devotion uh, was a much more powerful experience than trying to focus the mind. We're living now during a pandemic uh, where I'm living. There are fires on four sides of me. There's smoke in the air. There's a lot of economic uncertainty for a lot of people. It's a time when many people are experiencing depths of emotion that they have pretty much kept submerged or at a workable distance for most of their lives. Now, all of a sudden, this stuff is being brought to the surface in ways that can be very unpleasant. And it then begs the question, what is their motivation? What do we want? Why do we meditate? Why are we, quote, spiritual speakers, (laughs) spiritual seekers and speakers, unquote. Meditation is much more useful, much more powerful when it is supported by a clear intention. I think many people start to meditate because they want to suffer not so much. They want to feel a little better. They want to be calmer. They want to be a little more loving. And, of course, that's a Wonderful place to start if that's what you need to do. but eventually do we get to the place where we're looking within because we want to be free? Let's just look at a few of the ways a few of the the qualities that make it that make it difficult to meditate. I, I think if we see them clearly, then it really can clarify the way forward. The first one is that, We're identified with our thoughts and our mind-body states. We really underestimate and don't really get how deeply asleep we are. I was just saying a few minutes ago that, oh, look, I haven't been able to exercise, and consequently my body feels heavy, and that affects the way I I feel in general. That's a mind-body state. I, I prefer a mind-body state where I'm energetic and I've gotten exercise and the oxygen is flowing through my my bloodstream at good high levels. But it's only a mind-body state. Now, we're not saying here that you should ignore your body or taking care of yourself isn't important. But is that who we really are? And is there, in fact, an identification with thoughts and mind-body states that come and go, that we, we grab onto them. We say, that's who I am. I'm a cancer patient. I'm a male. I'm uh, a happy person. I'm a tired person. Rather than really noticing how these things are just coming and going in a very ethereal way in an entirely spacious background. We also underestimate our resistance to practice, how how easily we're attracted to distraction, to not really looking at the moment-to-moment arising of experience, because we have this other unconscious desire to feel good. And a really important point here is feeling good is not at all the same thing as being awake. So the question is, do you want to feel good or do you want to be awake? And in a way, that's one of the fundamental paradoxes of the spiritual path, that of course you want to feel good, but when we're grasping at pleasant mind states, pleasant sensations, pleasant emotions, we're not awake. Are we able to be with quote-unquote, the demons that are arising. To the extent we're, we're running away from demons, we're making them real. Can we allow unpleasant mind states to come and go? Can we allow unpleasant emotions to come and go? I have chosen a career of being with dying people because it's forcing me to look at rather extreme mind-body states, people uh, having very close relationships with people who aren't going to be breathing much longer, who might be in a lot of physical pain, who might have mental incapacity because of what's going on with the drugs they're taking or, or tumors in their brain, etc. So these, these three mistakes of uh, identifying with our thoughts and mind-body states underestimating our resistance to practice and underestimating this desire to feel good are based on a misunderstanding of something in Buddhism that's called the three characteristics of existence. Now, most of my practice personally is not Buddhist awareness practice. It, it has more a sense of either devotion or somatic practice. But I think some of these Buddhist ideas, even though a bit theoretical, when we begin to see them and understand them, can be incredibly useful. So in Buddhism, there are are the three characteristics of existence. The first one is that everything is impermanent. In fact, Dogen, the, the founder of one of the main schools of Zen Buddhism said, impermanence is Buddha nature. That just beginning to see how not see, but have this direct, immediate, intimate experience of how things are changing leads to freedom. And as we do that, we will not be so identified with thoughts and passing sensations and passing emotions. We're seeing that everything is impermanent. Impermanent, and In some larger sense, things are changing day to day, but in a much more moment-to-moment sense that as soon as you experience something, it's gone. As soon as you experience it, it's gone. And in fact, one of the, the experiences people have right before the first stage of enlightenment is a, a direct experience how everything is being born. In each moment, experience is being born. Boom, boom, boom. Every Every mind moment. So like if you're watching a movie, You can't really see it and hear it at the same time. Very quickly, the mind, the brain is going back and forth between hearing and seeing what it is that's going on. And the final stage right before you get enlightened is seeing how everything is dying. (laughs) At each moment, everything is falling away. And the more we can have this experience of being with the changing nature of things, it frees us from this, this... sense of grasping. Impermanence, right now, for instance, I'm talking, you're breathing, you're hearing, your body's moving, there's emotions coming and going, thoughts are coming and going. Can you be with that, that impermanent flow without getting caught up in, in grasping at one thing or another? Impermanence is called anicca in Pali in the Buddhist language. The next one is anatta, which is there is no self. There is an ego structure. And one of the things that makes meditation difficult is that in surrendering into this flow of impermanence, there is this tension between the standpoint of the ego structure, wanting things to be solid and permanent, and the fact that there isn't any real ongoing solid self. It's just a constant stream of consciousness-meeting experience. And the third characteristic of existence is that there is suffering when we grasp at positive mind states or when we push away negative mind or body states. So just beginning to notice how, in a a really moment-to-moment way, during life or during meditation, There are these unconscious processes going on that are really dominating the way we're relating to ourselves and to our environment, and that it it takes, for me at least, calming down, meditating, putting away distractions of movement and looking around, and beginning to be aware of how there are these very subtle but incredibly persistent tendencies to cling to the pleasant to resist looking at what's unpleasant and to be entirely caught in an unconscious way in that process, wanting to feel good. So that going back to motivation, do you want to feel good or do you want to wake up? Is it possible to clearly enough look at how suffering arises, clearly enough look at how this process in life is going on unconsciously and how it it really limits our freedom to love, to connect, to experience, that we begin to move our motivation from wanting to be happy and feel good to wanting to be awake. And of course, the wonderful footnote here is that the more awake you are, the more happiness there will be. But grasping at happiness limits awakeness. Okay, so let me stop for a few minutes here and ask if there are comments. Um, free, free is a concept that I don't quite get, and I don't quite get if there's a difference between being awake and being free, because free has no resonance with me. There you go, that's my question. What's free and awake? In a few minutes, we're going to talk about the progressive developmental path of meditation from mindfulness to heart practice to tantra to non-dual, and how we can pursue that path uh, with mantra, with working with energy in the body, with working with thought. An interesting question that will speak to Deborah's question is, what is what is mindfulness? Where do we begin here? What is mindfulness? In fact, would anybody uh, be so bold and brave as to define mindfulness? Does anybody want to tell me what mindfulness is? I think of it as awareness, as as a moment to moment awareness of things. Okay, moment to moment awareness, and I would suggest that there's nothing else we can do that we're always aware of what's going on in the moment if you're distracted you're aware you're distracted i mean basically consciousness is awareness in the moment right it's it's you can't be other than aware unless you're unconscious deep sleep if you're drunk you have drunk awareness if you're agitated you have agitated awareness If you're uh, really focused, you have focused awareness. Mindfulness is awareness with attention in the present moment on purpose and with an attitude or an an intentional stance of non-attached equanimity. That's somebody's definition. But the point is that mindfulness is not just being aware because we're always aware. I mean, that's what life is. But it's, it's being aware in a really balanced way with equanimity, where we know what's going on. We're not just aware, but we're aware we're aware with intention, with equanimity. So that when we're in that state, we then become free to act beyond conditioning. And then in that sense, freedom and what was the other What's the other word, Deborah? You were comparing freedom and awakeness, you said? Yeah, awake. Yeah, Yeah. so to to me, they're the same thing. Okay, so suppose then that we have cultivated some motivation, that we look at our lives and we say we want to be free, we want to be more awake, we want to be more free, we want to uh, begin to pay attention to these unconscious graspings at feeling better at certain kinds of mind-states, mind-body-states over others, then the first stage of practice I call invocation or trust. And in in, uh, Buddhism, it's vipassana, it's being mindful. And certainly it's possible to get enlightened by just practicing bear attention by just practicing mindfulness vipassana meditation. We will be going on to say in the next few minutes that studies have shown that even though you can do that, that if you then add in a uh, compassion, it really speeds up the process. Now there's two things to do, be aware of something and have an open heart in relationship to, to it. And then Even if you go beyond that and add emptiness, it really speeds up the process. So, yes, all you need to do is be mindful. But for most of us, that's a very slow practice. There's no rush to get enlightened. But what I mean by slow is that even friends of mine and myself who have done a lot of meditating notice that after decades of meditating, there are still psychological patterns that have not been met very fully in the meditative process, because they're so ingrained. They're the parts of me that I feel are me that are even running my life and my practice. I assume this is me, not something that I can pay attention to. So that certain ways that I relate in relationship or in work, even though I can be very clear when I'm meditating, some of these patterns that were conditioned when I was a very, very small child are, are so automatic that I don't even notice them. Consequently, it's, it's really necessary to bring in other channels up. instead of just being mindful. Can we feel what's going on in the body? Can we notice how our hearts are closing to certain people, certain situations to ourselves in certain times? Just as an example here, We're going to do a quick guided meditation, and I'd like to ask you, usually when we begin to meditate, it's necessary to do what's called meditation with support, mindfulness with support. In other words, you've got a central object of meditation, which is very often the breath or bodily sensations, a much more advanced practice is meditation, mindfulness, Without a support, you're just being aware of whatever it is that arises. And what I'm suggesting is it's very hard to do that because of conditioning. But what we're going to do here is use thought as the support for practice. So, I mean, I am motivated, I think, to be awake, and I've done several different forms of like meditation retreats and workshops and silence retreats. So often, I've spent my vacation, but I still have resistance to a daily practice. And I and I've had pretty successful meditations in that I've gotten to a state of bliss or whatever early on, um, and yet I still. I'm resistant to daily practice and I just don't understand what that's about. So I don't know if you can help me with that. Okay, well maybe even the way you asked the question there has some clues and that you had successful meditation you achieved bliss. <laughs> and uh, so successful meditation and bliss are, are two completely different things. Uh, it's nice when bliss shows up once in a while. But uh resistance to meditation resistance to daily practice in my personal experience comes from a, a resistance to looking at the non-bliss to looking at how i am arrogant and cowardly and grasping and and greedy, and all these things are coming up. I mean, in a way that I'm semi-successful in hiding from you guys at least some of the time. (laughs) John's shaking his head, maybe not, okay. (laughs) But the point is that when we sit down and we look, uh, it's not bliss, except in very sporadic moments, bliss will arise. And There's this fundamental tension between the groundless nature of who we actually are and ego's fixated standpoint that we're solid beings. I mean, going back to those three characteristics of existence, one of them is there's no self. That's a very unsettling thing to experience from the standpoint of ego. So we sit down and in a way... Meditation is confronting fear of death. It's letting go into no self, into not being who we thought we were. Whether you get comfortable in doing this by meditating or raising triplets or taking psychedelics or being a backcountry park ranger or whatever it is, whatever way you choose to work with that that ego death. It doesn't have to be meditation. It's how you choose a life to begin to meet that edge. And in fact, I think this group is maybe called Healing at the Edge. At least some of my groups are called that. So there's this edge that gets confronted when we sit down and start paying attention to our mind and our body. You know, I don't have any magic bullet here, but I will suggest that it takes discipline. It takes saying, Okay, I'm gonna meditate thirty minutes a day and I've got I've got a timer on my phone. You can even have a timer that rings a meditation bell at the end instead of a iPhone buzz or something. You can have a very nice Japanese bell ring and you say, I'm gonna do this. And I remember there was a time in my life when my I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd, I'd gotten my PhD. I'd gone to India. I'd come back from India. I didn't want to be a mathematician. I taught with Ramdas. That thing got done. I didn't have a job. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts with some friends. And I made a commitment. I'm going to meditate two hours every day, no matter what. And I did that. And some days it was like really hard. I was tired. I hadn't gotten around to it much in the morning. I had to do two hours at night. And it really, it really opened my life up. Not because I was meditating, but because I made a commitment to do something. As in any true spiritual teaching, the whole path is generally contained in the first paragraph. And the first paragraph is motivation. Right? I've got a client right now who's a 23 year old guy with a brain tumor. And all he wants to do is meditate. He can barely talk anymore. He has almost no short-term memory. He can barely walk. Uh, We used to get together every week in person. Now we do it via Zoom. And all he wants to do is meditate. He has a very strong motivation. Now, I don't think I have a brain tumor, and I hope nobody else here does. But do we have to wait till we have a brain tumor to be motivated to really examine who we are. And yeah, it's what we're looking at is not always pleasant. But then again, it comes back to what is it you want? Uh, My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi's quote, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. My suggestion would be to really contemplate what is the most important thing? What is it that you really want? And then practice will follow from that, I'm pretty sure. The other thing I could say to that is that not everybody is a stereotypical Buddhist meditator. I mean, some people are much more devotional. And in the beginning of practice, it's really useful to utilize your strengths as well as trying to correct your weaknesses, if I can use such dualistic language here. And if your strength is your heart, then maybe start out doing a heart practice, which will give you more softness and spaciousness, which will then allow you to confront these places that cause the resistance to be sitting down in the first place. So, in fact, Christy's question has inspired me to completely change the guided meditation I was going to do. We'll, We'll do that one later today. And just let yourself settle into your body. Notice how the air is coming in through your nostrils, down your throat, into your lungs. As you breathe in, your belly and chest rising and falling. And bring your attention to the center of your chest, to your heart chakra. Imagine that you could breathe directly into your chest, almost like, almost as if there were nostrils in the center of your chest. And as you breathe in, breathe in energy into the center of your your chest. And as you breathe out, breathe out spaciousness, boundlessness in all directions, infinitely above, below, right, left, up, down. other sensations, hearing, thought, emotion will arise. Just keep coming back to the sensations, the quality of breathing energy into the chest. You might experience it as loving-kindness, as compassion, as gratitude. And as you breathe out, you're surrendering, you're dying into love, you're dying into the spacious, boundless nature of the heart. Breathing into the center of the chest. Then a complete radical letting go of I'm meditating. There's something called meditating. There's some fruits of meditation that I'm trying to find. Meditation with absolutely no goal. Meditation is not a project or a special event. No attitude of great seriousness, giving up all hopes of improvement, surrendering into spaciousness. And as the practice deepens, realizing that this is at least as much about receiving as it is about doing and practicing the spaciousness that is, has as its nature. Love is our true nature. It's not something that we're finding or improving or accumulating. Surrendering into the depth of who we are. Any resistance, just one tiny cloud in the vast sky that is the heart mind. Any thought of I, just another small cloud. When there is any resistance to this letting go, compassion for your resistance, spacious heart, connected heart, a heart connected to self, to all beings, to God, the Source, Realizing this is not something we're doing, but letting go of our conditioning and opening into the ground reality. opening to the reality that many, many people are suffering, fires, illness, economic displacement, our heart spacious enough to include all of that without closing without resistance. Let's go directly from that to another practice. We're gonna, we're gonna meditate again, but we're gonna do something different this time. I wanted to create some space between these two practices. We could've uh, made it one big meditation, but I think it's important to make these separate. So just begin to notice sensations in your body just let your attention come into your body and be with whatever sensation predominates whether it's pleasant, unpleasant or neutral not trying to fix sensations not trying to make them more pleasant just letting your awareness flow from your head to your feet, wherever it's, wherever it's naturally attracted. Meditation with support, the support being physical sensation. And as you're doing this, you can still still hear the sound of my voice, emotions thoughts will arise and pass away but keep coming back to sensation we talked before about impermanence about no self about suffering all of these characteristics are being demonstrated and uncovered by this practice Sensations changing moment to moment to moment. As soon as you experience them, in the next moment, there's another sensation. There's really no self. There's just a rising sensation. And when we resist what we're feeling, there is suffering. Can you experience unpleasant sensation without suffering? Can you experience blissful sensation without without the suffering that comes from grasping. Just simply allowing sensation to arise into the spaciousness that is the nature of the heart-mind. But can we now then bring that quality of love and compassion that we cultivated in our previous practice and have loving relationship with sensation, using our relationship with sensation as a way of more deeply entering the heart, having a very intimate, loving, compassionate relationship with sensation moment to moment as it arises. Your body's just a mass of arising and passing away, cellular activity of sensation that has as its nature, the sense of warmth, of intimacy, And can we even then have a relationship with these sensations that begins to reveal that our own nature is the divine, is the sacred, is pure consciousness? The deity, the Buddha Dharma Sangha that we invoke sometimes in the beginning of practice is our own nature, and these sensations are simply an expression of that. Having this tantric relationship with reality, including self, that there is no deity other than our own true nature, one consciousness. expressed in such an intimate way. So whether we're using as support for practice a mantra or being with bodily sensation or working directly with thought, we can practice at these different progressive levels of being aware, mindful of what it is that's going on, bringing in the heart, coming to the tantric relationship with practice, letting these be the gateway to non-duality. So that if, if you're experiencing resistance and resistance to practicing in the way that Christie was describing, find a support that, that works for you. Maybe it's using a mantra to go into your heart or maybe it's being with your sensations in this intimate way that we just described. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's movement. I think everybody who's been doing some practice has come to the conclusion that there are ways that for you are a, uh, a, a direct connection that work better than something that you find out of a book or what the meditation teacher says, you should do this or you should do that. Consciousness doesn't care how you get there. It's completely up <laughs> to each one of us to find what works. Even the resistance. I mean, in a way, the stronger the resistance, the greater the potential, in some sense. If there's if there's great resistance, in, in tantric practice, the more difficult the emotion, the greater the resistance, the more there is the opportunity for awakening because there's strong energy there. So that as we're going through mindfulness, compassion, Tantra, these are really mindfulness and then spaciousness and then an energetic relationship. In Tantra, everything is just energy. And the more energy, the better, (laughs) right? Even if it's unpleasant energy, right? If you're like this really angry person, you, you might have a better chance of getting enlightened than somebody who's just kind of tiptoeing around. So that we, we use that basic energy to uh, strengthen motivation, to, to see how, when we're caught in that energy, how much suffering does arise. Let's open this up to a few questions, and then we'll take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back. Yeah, I have a question. Can you hear me? Who is it? It's Andrea. I don't have a picture of Okay. That's always confusing, but go right ahead. Uh, I wanted to ask about emptiness and these meditations that we've been doing where the self, you know, moving towards there's no sense of self and there's just the uh, connection with um, awareness. or presence. Is that what you're... Can you say more about emptiness and and is that emptiness? Another word for emptiness is fullness. (laughs) I mean, they're really the same thing. And emptiness doesn't mean nothingness. It doesn't mean there's nothing there. Emptiness at first blush sounds difficult or negative or unfriendly. And it's not empty, it's emptiness, two different things. Okay, And by emptiness, we mean that nothing has a permanent, separate, objective reality other than it's It's relationship with consciousness. It's uncovering by consciousness. So that ancient tantric wisdom and modern quantum mechanics has proved, quantum mechanics has proved what ancient tantric wisdom said, that there is no separable objective reality. That the refrigerator in your kitchen, if you're not in your kitchen now, exists only to the extent that you can go into the kitchen and look at it. Right, I mean, it's it's. It, I'm not saying that it's not there. I'm not saying that the vegetables and the almond milk or whatever the heck it is in your refrigerator isn't actually there, but its existence in a, in a very fundamental sense is dependent on consciousness meeting it, seeing it, smelling it, touching it. Emptiness is, in a sense, emptied of concept, and. In that meditation that we just did, in both of them, to the extent that there was a sense that I'm sitting here meditating in the way that Dale suggested that I do, and I'm having a good meditation now, there's very little emptiness there, because it's all filled with concepts. If on the other hand, there's just breathing in and out of the heart, spaciousness happening, You're not grasping at fruits of practice. There's not a you who's grasping. There's just process going on. There's a lot of emptiness there. Emptiness can be experienced as fullness, as you might have noticed that when you're empty, there is a sense of fullness. There is a sense of love or a sense of presence or a sense of beingness that is the nature of things that we often miss because we're denying emptiness because emptiness is ego death. And that, that leads to the resistance that Christie was concerned about before. So, once again, there's this paradox that by surrendering into emptiness, the ego gets really unhappy, but we're surrendering into who we really are. And there is a, a joy that transcends happiness and sadness. There's a fullness that transcends all concepts. So that the more we do that... The more we create these new neural pathways that that surrendering into emptiness, letting go of concept, is the direct path to awakening and freedom. You can even do an experiment. I mean, I noticed a few of you taking bites of food as we're doing this. I think Francis was maybe having some yogurt or something there. I don't know what what, what is it you're having there. But anyway. You caught me. <laughs> so... Take a bite of yogurt and thinking, I am eating some Danon low fat berry yogurt or what you know, whatever the thing is. And you're thinking I'm doing this and I'm liking it. And then see if you can completely clear your mind. There's nobody doing it. It's not you picking up the yogurt, it's the spoon doing it, right? And you're just letting it happen. See the difference in experiencing that bite of yogurt. I used to be involved in this thing called the painting experience here in Northern California. Maybe some of you have done that. But it's it's this notion of you go to the studio with a bunch of other people and you have these paints and these brushes. And there's a, a big, it's not a canvas, but, you know, that heavy paper that people paint on, whatever you call that. And the idea is you let the the brush do the painting. You're not trying to paint something that's going to go over your sofa. You're just, you're watching, or you're, how can I say this? You're trying to be empty in in the activity of painting and trying to be empty. You're surrendering into letting painting happening, right? It's kind of hard to language this stuff. And I was even in, a long time ago, I was in this, this spiritual discipline called subud, where the men go into one room and the, the women go into another room. And for an hour, all you do is you surrender to God. You, maybe you're quiet, maybe you make sounds, maybe you move around, maybe you're still. Newer people tend to make kind of awkward movements and unpleasant sounds, and the more seasoned practitioners were more flowing. And it was in the beginning, you would just notice how hard it was to be empty, to let presence just naturally arise through you, that there were all these these concepts, all this ego, other people are here in the room with me, what's going on? And you just began to learn to allow activity and life to flow through you whether you're painting or whether you're doing the subud thing or whether you're doing you. There are whole libraries written about the term emptiness. And in the Heart Sutra, the most famous or one of the two or three most famous Buddhist sutras, the sutra goes, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. What most Westerners have a hard time with is form is emptiness, All this form, all the stuff you see on the screen, all the stuff in your room, you touch your body, it's empty. But emptiness is also form. It's not like we're just floating away into nothingness and getting all spaced out. That there is form. People are suffering and dying. We get hungry. We have to go to the toilet. We have to buy groceries. We have to balance the checkbook in emptiness, but the form is still there. So just you can begin to notice how sometimes you're caught in the form, sometimes you're caught in the emptiness. Can you find the balance? And for me, that is the crucial practice of being with the dying. In a way, nobody's dying. It's just consciousness. It's just emptiness. But there's somebody lying in this bed who's suffering and scared, probably. And can I keep both of those things alive at the same time, the form and the emptiness? It's really easy for me to do one or the other really well. Can I do both of them at the same time? Can I be with somebody who's dying and realizing it's all empty? I'm empty as a helper. They're empty as this dying person. And yes, I mean, I'm bringing my own stuff into the room. And here's this person who's called me there because there's stuff to deal with. And here we are together. Yeah, Ramdev, Marci says, uh, so there is no death, no birth, and emptiness. I would not come to somebody whose who's beloved was dying and say there's no death. Uh, that would be very, very unskillful. I would try to hold that truth inside of me, and I would try to be with them in the in the realm of form. Mm-hmm. And if we could do that fully enough that they could then begin to expand and surrender into the emptiness, that would be great. I just did that for the first time when you were talking earlier, before you went into this birth and death part of it, when you were just through the meditation. Uh Because as you know, um, I started really hard on my spiritual journey when my son died, trying to find him to keep that love alive. Yeah. In the meditation just now, I had a dead ass backwards It wasn't about clinging to keeping him alive, but letting him go. And when I let him go, it was just emptiness. It was absolutely beautiful, so thank you. You're welcome. Now I have to not cling to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, even to say I have to is not very empty, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're setting yourself up for failure, where as soon as you say, I have to do this or that, then who's the I that has to do what, right? Yeah. And notice that even there's some sense of hope. So there's this very counterintuitive notion in Buddhism that you have to give up all hope. Because hope is wanting something to be different in the future. And if we can accept the present completely, fully, in in its profound emptiness, then the future will unfold in in the best possible way, given the karma of the situation. Yes. And it's it's it's, it's hard to trust that all the time for sure.